Good morning, Christ Point. Hope you are well. Continue to be praying for our students and our adult volunteer leaders. Uh, they headed out on Friday night to Camp Vertex. I trust they've been having a good time. I haven't heard otherwise. Uh, here it's chilly in the mountains, but uh, other than that, I know they've had a good time. So be praying for them as they return back uh, this afternoon, uh, trusting and praying that God uses uh, those moments in their lives to really form and shape them. Oftentimes, God uh, can change us just in an instant, right? All of us uh, look back uh, to sometimes a point in time in our lives where God uh, did something significant. So we've been praying for uh, some of those significant moments uh, this weekend. Well, according to the incredibly trustworthy source, Wikipedia, Cliff's Notes, every student's favorite study guide, uh, was started by a Nebraska native named Clifton Hillegas in 1958. He was working at a Nebraska book company in Lincoln, Nebraska, when he met Jack Cole. Jack Cole was the owner of Cole's, and he had a study guide called Cole's Notes. These, they're original, I know. I'm kind of grateful that Clifton Hillegas didn't go with his last name and instead just went with Cliff. Uh, eventually, Clifton started what we know today as uh, Cliff's Notes. It started in his basement in 1958. He started with 16 study guides for the works of uh, William Shakespeare. Uh, in 1998, his company was sold for $14.2 million. If you remember what it was like to uh, be in high school, then you probably are familiar with Cliff's Notes. Cliff's Notes prides itself on being uh, the first study guide. It's also uh, a great way for students who never want to read a complete book uh, to not have to. Uh, they just pick up the Cliff's Notes version uh, to get a big picture view of what it is uh, they are studying. Uh, Cliff's Notes actually has a version for the Bible. Right? If you were here this morning and you're like, this seems pretty weighty to me, perhaps Cliff's Notes is the answer for you, right? There is a moment in time when a religious leader came up to Jesus and asked Jesus for the Cliff's Notes version of the law. Uh, the conversation takes place in Mark chapter 12, and so if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me there. Mark chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 28. Uh, Mark 12, 28 reads, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, there is no commandment greater than these. Uh, a scribe was a, a religious lawyer. It was someone who interpreted or helped interpret uh, the Torah. Uh, this particular scribe heard conversations that Jesus was having with other spiritual leaders, and he too had a question to ask Jesus. 
Uh, unlike those who came before him, he did not ask Jesus a question in order to trap Jesus or to try to confuse Jesus or to cast Jesus in a negative light. He had an authentic and genuine question that he wanted to ask Jesus about the Torah and what was the most important command. He, he didn't want Jesus to rank the commandments in order of importance. He was just asking him uh, for a summary of the commandments. Uh, interestingly enough, what this man did to Jesus is something that took place years before Jesus and years after Jesus. As a matter of fact, 20 years before Jesus came onto the scene, there was uh, an old rabbi by the name of Rabbi Hillel uh, who was asked this very same question, what is the, the most important uh, command? And he answered uh, with the negative form of the golden rule. He said, what you would not want done to you, do not do to your neighbor. Uh, this is the entire Torah. Everything else is interpretation. There were 613 uh, Old Testament commands. 365 of them were negative. Uh, 285 of them, or 248 of them, were positive. Uh, some were considered light commands, meaning if you were to disobey the command, the consequence was light. Uh, others were considered heavy commandments, uh, meaning if you disobeyed the heavy commandments, the consequence or the punishment for them were heavy. So this scribe, this religious leader, this uh, religious lawyer, so to speak, came up to Jesus and asked him a question and said, which one of these is uh, the most important? And Jesus responded uh, with what is known as the great Shema. Now, the great Shema talks about the fact that the Lord, Yahweh, our God, Elohim, the Lord, is one. Uh, God is, is unified in his person. Uh, God has a covenant relationship with his people. He is unique in essence and existence. There's something about the God of the universe, in other words, that's different uh, than you and me. And so he asked them a legitimate question, and Jesus gave to him what would have been familiar to many Jews in the day. He gives them uh, the Shema, and the Shema means to hear. Uh, the Shema means not only to hear, but to listen, and not only to hear or listen, but it had this idea of actually doing uh, what God said uh, to do. Uh, if you're a parent here, there probably has been a time when uh, you have asked your son or daughter uh, to do a chore around the house, you know, empty the dishwasher or, or vacuum the living room or pick up your room or pack your lunch or put away your shoes. You've asked them to do something and they haven't done it. I, of course, have not experienced this personally, but other parents have told me that occasionally this happens. Uh, when it does, oftentimes you might say to your son or your daughter, did, did you not hear me? Did you not hear me? And what you're asking them is not simply, did you not hear the words that were coming out of my mouth? What you're asking them is, why, why did you not do what I asked? Right? And so there was this sense within the, the great Shema that, that God wanted Israel to hear, uh, to listen, but then also to do. What did he want them to do? Well, it says, I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. 
In other words, I want you to love God with uh, everything that is within you. I, I don't want you to love God in a half-hearted sort of way or in a, in a lukewarm sort of way. I want you to love him uh, with everything. The heart was the seat of emotions. And so uh, we are to feel an affection for God. This idea of soul was, was spirit, what makes us us. The, the mind was our intelligence. We are to, to think and to love God with with our minds, and we are to love him with our strength or with our will. So Jesus says to the religious leader, he says to the scribe, I want you to love God with everything that you are. Author Daniel Aiken said, God is never satisfied with anything less than the devotion of our whole life for the whole duration of our lives. Right? God wants us to be all in in our love and our affection him. This last week, I came across a number of questions that one author had posed as he uh, challenged his audience, those uh, readers, to actually uh, think about and question whether or not they truly uh, loved God and were passionate about God. He asked these questions. I asked them to you this morning. They were challenging to me. He says, is the Lord the all-consuming passion of my life? Is God the all-consuming passion of your life? Is he the all-consuming passion of my life? He says, do you have a deep, intense, and abiding affection uh, for the Lord? Are you loyal to God with an exclusive love? Are you zealous to defend with grace the Lord's name and honor? Do you enjoy spending time with the Lord? Do you do things that please, that please God and increase uh, his joy, do you brag on God uh, to others? Do you speak his name uh, when you are around family or friends or neighbors? Uh, do you tell uh, God that you love him? Uh, do you talk uh, with God as much as uh, you can? The scribe, the religious leader, approaches Jesus and says, Of all the commandments, what's the most important? And God says, or Jesus says, You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. You are to love him with everything uh, that you are. But Jesus then does something that would have uh, surprised the scribe or even caught uh, the audience a little bit off guard. Jesus uh, takes something else and combines it with that call to love God. And it is uh, loving our neighbors. Uh, Jesus doesn't look at them as two separate commands per se. Instead, uh, one of the ways that we love God is to love our neighbors. Right? Jesus connects these two ideas. Right? You shall love the neighbor as, your, as yourself. There are no commandments uh, that are greater uh, than these. Right, so these are not optional in the Christian life. If we are to follow Jesus and pursue the way of Jesus, uh, we are to love God with everything that we are, and we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Um, oftentimes, uh, you may have caught someone uh, saying something like, hey, I, I love God, but I, I don't know about my neighbor. Or I love God, but I don't know about the people that he has placed around me. Or I love God, but I do not love the church. Right? What, what Jesus does here in Mark chapter 12, it says, as a, as a people of God, we can't operate that way. We can't say on one hand that we claim to love God, uh, but we do not love his people. 
First John chapter 4, verse 20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Jesus says in other uh, words, if you do not love others, you do not love God. And so what, is it, what does it look like to, uh, to love others? Is it, is it something that we're just supposed to do? Is there a, a checklist? How can we know that uh, we love others genuinely? Uh, Tim Keller uh, writes, Jesus shows us that love actually defines the lawful life. He shows us that the law actually defines the loving life. When Jesus says all the laws boil down to love God and neighbor, he is saying that we have not fulfilled a law by simply avoiding what the law prohibits, but we must also do and be what the law is really after, namely love. Right, so what he's arguing is that we can't simply say that we are obedient to God and follow God and love God by not doing a handful of things. He's saying if, if we love God, then we must love other people. They are connected. And so again, what does it look like for us to love our neighbors? Right, we know our neighbors are not just the people who live on the on other side of us. Right, the people that stay up a little late on the weekends or the people uh, that annoy us or the people that, that bother us. Right? Those aren't just our neighbors. Our neighbors are the people that you're sitting next to. The neighbors are people who you work with. Your neighbors are the people that God has placed in your life. Right? So what does it look like for us to love our neighbor? Leviticus chapter 19, where that a command to love our neighbor is given, actually paints a, a beautiful picture of what it looks like for us to love our neighbor. It lists a number of things. Uh, it says to love our neighbor is to care for the poor. Right, to, to see those who are in the, the margins in society for those uh, who, who lack resources and to be able to come alongside of them. Right, loving our neighbor means not stealing, not taking what does not uh, belong to us. Uh, loving our neighbor means that we are truthful with our words, that we don't lie. Uh, it means that we're fair in our business dealings. Right, it looks like caring for the blind and for the, the deaf. Uh, those who are in need of help, it means uh, dealing justly with all. It means as a people of God, we avoid slander. We avoid uh, gossip. We, we don't throw people under uh, the bus. We don't jeopardize uh, the lives of our neighbors. We don't harbor hatred against our brothers. Uh, Leviticus 19.17 says that you rebuke your neighbor when necessary uh, for his and your good. And so we speak the truth and love, that's one of the ways that we love our neighbors. We, we don't take revenge or bear a grudge against one another. Right? As, as a people of God, we are called uh, to love our neighbors. It's one of the reasons that we're doing what we're doing this Christmas as a church. Uh, well, after the message, I'll share with you uh, the, the Christmas project that we're doing. But I mentioned it last week. We've partnered with the West Cabarrus Y and uh, helping uh, under-resourced uh, people in our community uh, have great Christmases, right? Uh, we, we want to come alongside of those who are in a situation where, where maybe they uh, can't 
provide sufficiently for their families and say, hey, we want to we wanna love you well. And so there's a number of Christmas ornaments that you see out in the hallway. There's a sign-up sheet that you're going to receive uh, this week where we can bless these families. We want to partner with uh, not just folks in our community, but around the world. We have a relationship with a great organization called Children's Impact Network. We're going to provide backpacks for uh, orphans in Honduras and uh, Bolivia and Chile this year. Right? Because we want to love our neighbors, and our neighbors are people uh, who God brings uh, across our path. It's one of the reasons that as a church we're pursuing small groups in January. We want to launch a number of, of healthy and strong small groups because uh, we're called to love one another well. Right, so the scribe comes up to Jesus and asks him for the Cliff Notes version of the commands. And, and Jesus replies, I want you to love God with everything that you are. Uh, and I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. The scribe responds in verse 32 of Mark chapter 12. Uh, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. And there is no one other besides him. And to love him with all the heart uh, with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so this, the scribe responds well to Jesus' teaching. Right? He agrees with Jesus. Incidentally, that's typically a good idea. Right? If, if Jesus is teaching something, we want to fall on his side. And so the scribe says to Jesus that you, you've done well, that I, I agree, that's, that's true. The scribe even acknowledges to Jesus that a relationship with God is, is more than simply uh, sacrifices or burnt offerings. In other words, a relationship with God is simply more than just a to-do list or things that we uh, check off. There's, there's more to a relationship with God uh, than that. As a matter of fact, it means loving God and loving others. Jesus responds in verse 34, And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You are not far from the kingdom. Uh, those words are full of hope. Right, on one hand, you're, you're, you're almost there. Right? You're, you're not far from the kingdom. Those are, those are words of hope. Jesus comes alongside like we would come alongside a, a son or a daughter with a math problem and going, hey, you're almost there. Right? I see it. You're starting to figure it out. You're tracking with me. You're almost there. Now, those are words of hope. Uh, and uh, yet, not only are they words of hope, but they are potentially uh, crushing words. Right? Words of hope, and yet they are potentially crushing. Now, why would that be? Why, on one hand, can we look at the scribe and go, boy, you, you, are, you are not far from the kingdom. And yet, on the other hand, say those words could, be, could potentially uh, be crushing. Uh, every summer for family vacation, uh, my family, my wife, my three kids uh, head back to West Michigan. 
Uh, as I probably have told you before, I was born on the east side of the state. I still have family in the Detroit area. Melissa's family lives on the west side of the state. Uh, she grew up outside a place called Kalamazoo, Michigan. And every summer we head back to Michigan and we go to this little vacation town uh, called South Haven, Michigan. It's this cool little place. A number of years ago, when our kids were very young, uh, we packed our van the night before we were to leave. And after packing the van, Melissa and I looked at each other and came up with an incredibly brilliant idea. I said to Melissa, what do you think about us leaving right now? Like, what do you think about us throwing the kids in the, in the van and just driving through the night? Right? If you're a parent, you know there's some benefit to sleeping children. Right? In my mind, this was a great idea because if you go to bed at 9 o'clock at night, it makes sense that you would leave at 8 o'clock at night to drive 13 hours through the night. So Melissa unfortunately looked at me and said, that actually is, is a really good idea. Let's do that. And so we piled into the van and we took off and we drove forever. I mean, it seemed like forever. We drove and we drove and we drove. And I remember at one point, one of our children uh, said to us from the back seat, Mom, Dad, is that Lake Michigan? And we looked up and we said, No, that's Lake Norman. Twelve and a half Hours later, and many, many cups of coffee and a few drifts over onto the rumble strips on uh, the highway, uh, we drove past Main Street in South Haven. A Main Street in South Haven is the, is the main stretch in this little vacation town. And if you were to look down Main Street in South Haven, Michigan, uh, you would see in the distance water and a red lighthouse. That's actually the spring in Michigan. That's not how it looked. It looked a little something like this. But it's a beautiful place. And if you drive by Main Street and, and you see the sign for South Haven, Michigan, uh, you know you are not far from home. Right? We know that we are not far from Nana and Papa's house. I mean, we are close. We are just minutes away. We are not far but we're also not there yet. If I said to my kids when we drove by Main Street in South Haven, there it is. There's the lake out in the distance. Let's head home. Let's turn her around. Our kids would go, no, no way. Like we've driven 13 hours. We're not far. And in many ways, uh, we are not. We're not far. Uh, but we're also uh, not home yet. I feel like the scribe that came to Jesus and asked him a question about the law uh, was not far. Right? And in some ways, uh, being able to say to yourself, we are not far from uh, the kingdom is really, really uh, good news. Uh, but the bad news is that we are not there yet. And so my question that I ask, that we should ask, is if he is not far from the kingdom, uh, what does it look like or what does it take to be in the kingdom? Uh, what does it take uh, to be home? And let me suggest to you that the response 
uh, for the scribe was not simply to hear the command of the Lord and think to himself, boy, I, I love God with like a seven right now, uh, and I need to love God with like an eight. I love my neighbor on a scale of one to ten with like a three, but if I could love him with like a six or a seven, that would get me in. Uh, that would not have been uh, the right answer for the scribe. The scribe needed to hear the command of the Lord to love God with everything that he is and to love his neighbor uh, as himself. He needed to hear that, but he also uh, needed to hear the good news of the gospel in that. Uh, the good news of the gospel teaches us that we don't earn God's affection. We don't earn our way uh, into the kingdom. But the gospel teaches us that we were born uh, broken. We were born into sin. Sin is anything that we do against God in word and thought and in deed. Right? And all of us, this is an even level playing field. All of us have found ourselves uh, there. Right? And God is holy and just, and so God can't simply ignore our sin. He can't brush our sin underneath the rug. He can't go, you know what, let bygones be bygones. That's not a big deal. No, God's holy and just, and so he must deal with our sin, but God is also uh, full of grace and mercy. So God sent Jesus, his son, fully God and fully man, uh, to come to this earth to live a perfect life and to die a sinner's death. Uh, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, the punishment that rightfully deserved, that I deserved and that you deserved uh, was placed on the shoulders of Jesus. Jesus uh, was buried, and then Scripture teaches us that three days later, uh, he rose again. Jesus defeated death and offers to us life. Uh, what the scribe needed was not uh, simply advice on how to love God more. The scribe uh, needed the good news of the gospel. The scribe needed uh, to know that we love God because he first loved us. If you're here this morning and you are someone maybe like the scribe, Right? You, you know your way around Scripture. The Word is familiar to you. Maybe you've heard some of the stories. Maybe you could have a great conversation about uh, what the Word says or even what God requires. But maybe God is saying to you this morning, uh, you are not far off. But maybe you're not there. Maybe you're not there. Maybe you, like the scribe, are, are asking uh, honest and open questions. You're listening. You're seeking understanding. Uh, God has sent someone into your life to pour into your heart and into your soul, and you're wrestling with faith. Maybe the word that you hear this morning is you are, you are not far off. But I want you to know that I, it's my hope, it's our hope that that it's not just that you're not far from the kingdom, uh, but that you are a part of the kingdom. Uh, my hope for you and my hope uh, for me is that we would be a people who love God, 
not out of duty or obligation, but that we love him because he has first loved us. That's what God does when he comes and rescues us. That's what the Spirit does when he comes and invades our hearts and in our lives. He begins uh, to change us so that when God calls us to love him and to love others, we are able able and capable uh, of doing that because God's work uh, in us. Maybe this morning uh, you are not far but maybe you're not home yet. Uh, my prayer uh, for you uh, is that we might be able uh, to welcome you home. Would you pray with me? God, it seems like uh, a spiritual life can, can be a journey. There are, are times when uh, we ask and uh, answer uh, deep and significant questions. Uh, like, like the scribe, we, we come and we want uh, understanding. We, we desire to know and to understand who uh, you are. And it seems like in your grace and your goodness, there are times when your spirit works in our hearts in such a significant way uh, that you just, you just arrest our hearts, Lord. You arrest our spirits. You open our eyes. You help us to see that a relationship with you is not earned. Uh, it, is, it is given. If there are folks here this morning, that that's, that's where they stand, Lord. They are not far uh, from the kingdom. Lord, I pray that uh, by your Spirit, you might grant them the faith uh, to believe and trust in the finished work of Jesus. Uh, Lord, as the, the people of God, those who are here, who, who know you and love you, albeit with an imperfect love, Lord, I pray that you would continue to stir in our hearts a love and affection uh, for you. Uh, Lord, we, we do love you. We love you imperfectly, but we love you. And so I pray that you would uh, continue to stir in us uh, a heartfelt affection uh, for your son, Jesus. Uh, God, we love you this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen.